0: The battle of Britain is about to begin. V-Crite, we got a tank tractor. Let's follow the radio on V-Crite. I've been around that on the right target right now. I've got a couple of views right beside our base. Go down, please. Welcome back to the Lead Pursuit Podcast. Tonight, we're not going to talk about blood red skies. And I realize that may horrify some of you. But for the 10% of our audience that listens, that plays Check Your Six, you're going to be happy. Because tonight, we're not just talking about Check Your Six. We're going to talk Jet Age, Check Your Six stuff. And we're going to talk about a specific module. So as a lot of you know, we've been working through some of the missile rules for Blood Red Skies. Well, plagiarism and imitation is the finest form of flattery. So where am I going to to figure out how you're supposed to actually write a scenario? None other than CB Stevens, the author of the Crisis in Cashmere module for Check Your Sticks. CB, thanks for joining us tonight.
1: Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: I also have one of my other non-Check Your Six players, Steve, on tonight. Steve, thanks for joining us.
2: Absolutely. Always a pleasure.
0: So between the two of us with our sum zero of Check Your Six knowledge, I will apologize at the start to CB and to all of our audience members who've actually played. Uh, I have to give uh, Sandy and Rob and a bunch of other guys uh, a huge shout out. They keep trying to drag me into online Check Your Six games. However, they usually send me a message at about 6 o'clock PM for an 8 PM game. So uh, guys, that doesn't work. Uh, My schedule is full of stupid stuff like making podcasts. Uh, So give me a little heads up and you can get me online and beat me up and check your six and we'll go from there. But I don't want to dwell too much on the rules because frankly, I know none of them. And we're not really talking about that part of this source book and of this campaign book. We're going to talk about some of the neat things that we probably don't know if you're not a historian who's really dug into the India-Pakistan air wars, especially the 1965 uh, over Kashmir. Uh, and we're going to dig through a little bit of how we ended up with someone like C.B. Stevens, not an aviator, as I'm sure he'll say, uh, writing an aviation source book. So, C.B., give us a little bit of your personal background and then how you, uh, where you really got your start in wargaming.
1: Oh, boy, you're going way back there. So... Um... I'll start with the how did I get into Wargaming before I really talk about myself because I don't know that didn't come out quite the way I meant it. But um, I started so if it's from Game- the Dark
0: Ages and you're and you're moving small little chunks of uh, of rock around on uh <laughs> exactly. there next yeah. to Homer and 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 Odysseus, you know, then uh, then I can understand why.
1: Yeah, exactly. No, um, going back to to um, to high school and um, Sandy and I went to high school together and we were. Uh, uh, we joined the war games club together. And, um, but prior to that, I had been playing, I, I forgot that i probably since sixth grade, I've been playing Avalon Hill board games. Um, and then uh, I, I learned that there were actually more than two other people in the world that enjoyed that um, when I got to, to, to high school. Um, and then um, I, I continued to play Avalon Hill board games uh, all through high school. And then, you know, I went to college and learned that um, there were other things like beer and, uh, dance and- <laughs> all,
0: all those things that we shouldn't have ever learned about had we wanted to be good <laughs> war gamers. Uh, well, so so let me let me derail you there for a second and, and ask, what were your favorite Avalon Hill uh, games growing up? Because I, too, was an Avalon Hill baby, uh, and I know which ones my pet rocks are,
1: yeah, so I, I think I you know, you asked that question to to Avalon Hill war gamers, and i'm I, I have no doubt that most people are going to say, a squad leader, and it was my favorite too, yep. hands down, hands down. But uh, I always loved the ground games. Um, so Panzer Leader, Panzer Blitz were my other two favorites. Played a lot of Third Reich, um, but uh, you are
0: a brave man. I, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> I actually opened the box that a friend of mine had once and said, "Ooh, that's a little complex," and put the box top right back on.
1: <laughs> yeah, no. When I was, um, you know, I, like I said, I started probably in sixth grade playing board games, and I bought Third Reich. I don't know, maybe when I was in eighth grade, ninth grade, um, and uh, I actually got an adult to play it with me. And um, boy, he just smeared me across the board. But um, I I don't think I played it again very much after that.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, like a lot of games, it ended up back on the shelf because uh, I I know that I always tended to fall into the I obviously love Panzer Leader and Panzer Blitz, but enjoyed uh, Africa Core. Still enjoyed Tactics Two as a wonderful intro game that was just mindless and you could have fun with. But uh, definitely became a huge squad leader. You know, uh, Crescendo of Doom, Iron Cross, uh, and GI Anvil uh, fan.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Me too. I, you know, I, I had gotten out of it by the time Advanced Squad Leader came along, but I remember, you know, reading um, the General. If you remember the General, to Lon Hill.
0: Uh, oh yeah, I dug up a couple of my copies out of storage while I was looking for the Crisis in Kashmir source book.
1: <laughs> right, right, yeah. So I remember there was an article in the General, um, and this was while I was in high school, talking about how great it would be if you could play uh, war games on a computer. And you could what a revolutionary ju- idea. <laughs> yeah, and you wouldn't be able to see the other person's pieces. It would be awesome. Um, so yeah, that, uh, I don't, I forgot I lost my train of thought now. I don't remember where I was going with that, but um,
0: well, I was, I was gonna actually give Sandy a shout out on that. I, I had things like that that seemed so revolutionary. when Sandy sent me a text, uh, I think it was this morning or yesterday he said, "Hey, are you interested in a play by email?" Uh, game of diplomacy. I almost had to laugh because I hadn't thought of play by email in like the last 10 years <laughs> because everything has been real time online via Roll20, Tabletop Sim or whatever. So Sandy, you're you're a dinosaur, but we still love you.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, Sandy and me, we're both Luddites, I guess. So uh, he, he he sent me the same invite. So um, you be <laughs> Austria-Hungary and I'll be England. How about that? Exactly. <laughs> we'll see how that works out. <laughs> Uh, so, so more about me, uh, <laughs> so I, after, uh, after high school and, and college, um, you know, uh, I ended up going into the military. So I was in ROTC, um, in college and I honestly tell, will tell you that I learned a lot about tactics from playing squad leader. Um, and it helped me be a better infantry officer and, um, and helped me be a better special forces officer. So that's where my career went after the military, um, infantry and then special forces, um, and then, uh, I left the, left the army in 94 and spent a lot of time in Africa as a security manager, corporate security manager. And then I went back to work for the government doing anti-terrorism stuff and, and sort of been in that milieu ever since, but never, ever in my life have I been behind the controls of an airplane.
0: Well, then, you know, <laughs> you haven't scared yourself enough. <laughs> as, uh, as you probably heard, you know, it's five minutes or 30 minutes of uh, sheer boredom with. 30 seconds of sheer terror at the end of it. Uh, But yeah, so I will laugh and say that I had no idea until we started talking before the podcast, um, what your background was. And I find it funny how many people assume that everyone who plays aerial war games or writes aerial war games has to, has to have a background in aviation. And that's just not true. But uh, we'll talk about that a little bit more, uh, a little bit more later.
1: Yeah, I, I, w- I was just going to say uh, to riff on that a little bit that um, I never, you know, setting aside the fact that we played the air war role playing game <laughs> in, yeah. in in high school, <laughs> um, I never had any interest in, in air games at all. Uh, I thought airplanes were cool, but, um, you know, and, and flying them sounded like it might be fun, but never had any interest in aerial warfare. And it really just came about um, because you know my, my gaming buddies, and I don't even remember what year it was now, 2004 or something, when we wrote the book, um, decided that it would be fun to play an Air War game. And that's how I got involved.
0: So I kind of had to laugh as we were talking before the podcast. There's, I think, two kinds of game designers out there. There's game designers who are sitting there smoking their pipe, drinking their cup of coffee, and the lightning bolt strikes their head and they say, I will create a game about whatever topic that is has fascinated them or they've researched or whatever. Then there's the other, I don't know, whatever percentage, I, I probably should not lie and say it's really 80%, that they will play somebody's game and they'll go, oh my God, I could do better than that. <laughs> and That's an impetus for them to write. And Whether or not they could do better, that isn't the answer. It's, it's that that causes the creative inspiration to go, what if we did something differently? What if unlike Air War, we didn't make you need a PhD in aeronautical? studies, uh, to actually be able to play the game. Uh, and so it uh, sounds to me that's kind of how you ended up being involved, uh, creating and writing in Check Your Six.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, we we picked up a set of rules, um, as I was mentioning before the podcast started. Um, Scott Fisher uh, is is very good about trying out lots of different sets of rules and finding the one that fits our group's playing style best, Right. Um, but, uh, we really hated the <laughs> air war or the air rules that we had. And, um, we had a horrible name, nickname for them, which I, I won't repeat again. Um, but, uh, hey, we're
0: we- an E rated podcast. You
1: could, you could call anything <laughs> what you want uh, here. All right. All right. Yeah. So, well, I, you know, I don't actually remember what the name of the, the game was. I think it was red sun, blue sky or something like that, but we called it, we hated it so much. We called it red bra blue panties. Cause it was just ridiculous. Okay. Um, <laughs> Uh, so, you know, we all, we we played it two or three times and we said, this is just crap. Um, We can do better than this, as you just said. And and so that was the impetus to sit down um, and do it. And for whatever reason, uh, maybe I just wanted to impress Scott because we just become friends at the time, but I, I sort of volunteered to help and he and I built the game. I, I say he and I, I mean, he deserves 99.9% of the credit because he is the brains behind um, making the rules as elegant and smooth as they are. Um, but, uh, we, we spent, you know, hours and hours and hours, uh, at his dining table, um, you know, working on the rules and play testing them. And, um, as I mentioned again, before you started recording, um, the, the, uh, Falcon of the Duce book, the other, or one of the other scenario books that I've written, um, was our, our play test uh, sources for or play test scenarios for, for the, for the rules. And then, you know, we had all, <laughs> had all those scenarios already written. So we, we just slammed them together between two pieces of cardboard and put them on the shelf as a, as a scenario book. But um, yeah, I, I have no background didn't, don't understand, still don't understand anything about airplanes. It's all voodoo, right? How they stay up in the air. I don't know. They go fast enough, I guess, whatever it is.
0: EFM <laughs> black fucking magic. That's how they stay up in the air. <laughs> And usually yeah. you know when the black magic goes out cuz the smoke comes out the back end and then the black yeah. magic's gone they're going to fall <laughs> out of the sky. So that's that's how we figured it out in aviation.
1: Yeah. So but but uh, um you know we we wanted it to be um we wanted the rules to to represent the pilots more than the airplanes. Obviously the, the chrome is in the airplanes and you know this airplane's really cool and I'm you know I want to fly that airplane. But we wanted to show that it was the pilot uh, that that the most important thing is the pilot and not the plane that he's flying and and um, that was you know one of the the basics of the design philosophy of the game was to ensure that it was about the man and not the machine and so we went to great lengths to insert um, as much as possible the way in into the rules the way that that a different skill leveled pilot will be able to you know, manage flying his airplane um, in in different ways. So, you know, clearly a more skilled pilot is better able to manage his airplane than a less skilled pilot. Um, so, you know, pilot skill is one of the platforms of the of the game design, and and it is, um, you know, it's woven into the fabric of the game uh, in in every way we could think to do it. That made sense.
0: That's one of the interesting things to look at, how different games give you more or less control of what the pilot's doing or assume more or less the pilot's skill. As we talk about Air War, you basically had to fly that airplane. You had to know how what your energy addition was, what your attitude was, what your um, altitude changes were, all, all those things. And you might as well have flown a flight simulator uh, for playing that game, the, the level of detail it had. And then you go to the other end of the spectrum where you have uh, games that are like uh, Wings of Glory. You've got games like Blood Red Skies where very much they are super generalized. The pilot It's assuming the pilot knows what he's doing. You don't have to tell him how to make a hard turn. You don't have to tell him how to do an Immelman or a split S. Uh, you just say, hey, I want to go generally over here. Uh, do I have to give up some energy or as we call it, advantage in blood red skies? Uh, and you assume the pilot knows the stick monkey skills <laughs> to get themselves there. Uh, and then you don't have to track a lot of the information that you do in more complex games. But you know, a- as the disclaimer, as I said at the beginning, I still horrible person that I am. Have not played Check Your Six uh, as much as I now own uh, three different, four different books for it. Uh, but it's it's one of those things that it at least impresses me that there are some decisions you get to make about how you get to a point in space and make some of those compromises. But it certainly is not uh, super crazy granular detail about how much energy am I losing and what exactly is my climb angle and dive angle. Uh, my buddy uh, Pat. Uh, Doyle, who you guys have heard me talk about on the podcast, he he was sending me some of the charts and diagrams from birds of prey. And I just, I looked at that and I said, I, I have zero desire to play that game now that you've shown me that because it is calculus on a chart. And no, I'm not good enough to do that. So <laughs> that that will turn me off a game pretty quick.
1: Yeah, so I, I like to think that uh, you know, check your six is is in between those two extremes you talked about, um, and and I'm going to tell you right now, it is the best air game ever written, and you better get and out. You're and not
0: biased. biased at all. I <laughs> am
1: not biased.
2: No, you know, <laughs> I was going to, I was going to say one of the great things about check your six is the airplane, kind of the airplane sheet that comes with it, right? Is it kind of breaks it down in a very simple way that it's also easy to see what the differences between the airplanes are. So again, I've just kind of observed some of Rob's online games. But uh, for as much freedom as it gives you as the pilot to make those actual decisions, it has a very intuitive way about doing it. So that's kind of what really intrigues me about about getting into some uh, Check Your Six games
1: yeah I, I right. um and again, we tried you know we tried to make it intuitive to to as as great an extent as possible and and we also you know purposely um, built it so that it was visual. Um, and those turn charts um, and maneuver sheets um, give you that you know if you've never flown a plane before like me, um you look at that sheet and you go, okay, I can see all of the things that this airplane that I'm flying today is capable of doing. And but at the same time, um, you have to understand uh, the level of understanding that's required for Check Your Six is okay. If I do, if I pick that one, I can do it. But if I pick that one, there are repercussions to that. You know, to uh, as we say in, in energy, which you know is uh, represented by different things um, in 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 Check Your Six, usually by loss of speed. But um, uh, so you have you, you can do some radical maneuver that that being uh, that. A more skilled pilot may be able to do a more radical maneuver than a less skilled pilot, but he's got to pay the price in in the effect it's going to have on on what he can do in the next turn. So that's sort of how we tried to meet in the middle. So
0: that's a that's a good segue to talking about uh, how things change in rules and rule books and obviously going from check your six World War Two prop age to suddenly going to the, the jet age rule book. And and then needing to backfill that with stories and scenarios because obviously you guys have play tested and and really done a lot for the World War II side. Uh, by the time I come into this game years later, all these source books are already out there, thank goodness. So it's <laughs> it's easy to pick them up and and to sit there and go, oh, this is kind of cool. I I get different flavor of different aircraft and I get a little bit of of tweaks on the rules. Uh, and and it was kind of interesting to to open up the. Crisis in Kashmir source book, and from almost the very beginning, you say, Hey, I realize you know how to play Check Your Six, but we're gonna have to do something different. And part of that is because this conflict is not World War II. This conflict is not Korea. Uh, you've got it's not a US client and a Soviet client fighting each other, or it's not a all-out huge air war. It's one independent air force and what the U.S. Air Force thought was a U.S. client, but really was kind of doing their own thing, um, and and that mix of of pilot skills and and people who weren't necessarily all that experienced, suddenly having to to be engaged in 19 days of aerial combat and making bad decisions, and and we'll talk about it a little bit um, in some of the special rules, but all of a sudden you had to be able to account for in your campaign book. Pilots turning the wrong way and leaving the fight accidentally and finding themselves alone or, you know, leaving the fight and fleeing in the wrong direction. And now do they have enough gas to get back to home base? Um, so, so tell me a little bit with, with that as a, as a construct, uh, when you started digging into doing this Kashmir source book, uh, what, what really drew you to it being the Kashmir conflict? Why'd you say, let's pick this one that is so unlike anything else we've done?
1: Well, so that's just unfortunately that's just part of my nature. I, I <laughs> I'm drawn to I'll take, to the, I'll take odd the hard stuff.
0: project. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: um, I remember uh, back in the '90s, there was a guy who had a website called Weird Wars, um, and you know he did. Uh, it was it was a wargamer site, but he, he he concentrated on crazy stuff like, you know, the soccer war of 19. 19- 62 <laughs> or whatever it was um but um but it really uh, you know that that really grabbed my attention and and got me thinking about the, the really crazy stuff and uh, you know it just sort of fit with with my personality um so i uh, I picked the indo-pakistani war of 1965 um for you know several different reasons one is that I'd never heard of it before, so I figured a lot of other people hadn't, and so it was going to be, you know, something that that um, was not known, and therefore might be uh, perk up a little more interest than some other subjects might. Um, but or also, you could get
0: away with making historical mistakes, and no one would call you out. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, there is that too, especially considering there were only two resources in English yeah. that I could find <laughs> at the time. But um, but the other thing was, um, you know, we obviously were. Um, um, had already spent a lot of time developing the Jet Age rules, um, which was a, a significant departure from the World War II prop Age rules. Um, not the least of which is that now the the air battle takes place across the entire game board. Not you know usually in a in a World War II check your six game, it's a knot of airplanes somewhere in the middle, and the table sort of turns around it. But um, now you could you know, you can fly from one end of the table to the other in in two or three turns. Um, you know, if you're flying an F-104, you can probably do it in one turn, but you're not exactly. gonna you're not gonna and come not back around. Again. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Which is where some of those special rules come in. Um, but so yeah, I, I wanted it to be um, uh, we all wanted it to be a, a sort of a transition books so that you didn't jump straight from. Um, you know, speed three, speed four in a prop driven plane to speed seven in a, in a phantom. Right. Um, and and radar homing missiles and, you know, IR missiles and things. Now, there are IR missiles in the in the Kashmir book, um, but they are first generation IR missiles or maybe second generation IR missiles. Um, so you're usually better off using your guns <laughs> than, than your missiles. Um, but yeah, we wanted it to be a transition, so it, it was a way to to be able for people to to move smoothly f- uh, from the World War II Korea um, combat to to a true jet age combat. Um, you know, Korea is sort of a hybrid. Um, but uh, so so that was the second reason. Um, but it was a fascinating thing to to study, even despite the fact that there were only two resources to to look at. Um, and, you know, what you mentioned uh, just a minute ago uh, about the pilots, um, and they didn't have a lot of experience, and yet, you know, they were they were the elite of their country's military. Um, but once they actually engaged in combat, it was, uh, you know, <laughs> your eyes open up. I, I mean... Oh yeah, um, you know. I,
0: I thought it was just kind of funny to read the accounts because I'm I'm reading through uh, the India-Pakistan Air War of 1965 by uh, Jagad Mohan and Samir Chopra, and it's it's just funny when you read the accounts with people, you know, like I said, turning the wrong way, getting lost, going going and landing at uh, you know Pakistani airfields when they thought they were landing at a, a Indian expeditionary airfield, and things that you would go, there's no way that's going to happen, and then you have to step back and realize, you know, twenty years prior. This was a colonial air force for the Indians, uh, and and a lot of the Pakistanis at that time were members of that air force. And so you even have the air marshals on both sides of the 1965 air war are actually close friends, and they're close friends who grew up in similar aviation circumstances. So it's it's a very interesting study, at least to me as the as the amateur historian, in uh, that not every war is a practiced, rehearsed, uh, well thought out affair. That sometimes it's a pickup game. And and you're trying to find the right, you know, on, at least on the aviation side, the right platform for the right mission on the right day. And those rules change all the time with what the enemy threat is for anti-aircraft, for their combat air patrols, uh, and even what the weather is or is it night. So um, I, for me, that this conflict is fascinating with airplanes that you thought would succeed or would be the game changers either getting shot down in the first couple of days or never getting into the conflict. Uh, hardly at all because they were deemed too valuable. So, well let's talk a little bit about the research. Uh cuz you you talked about the your sources. Tell us a little bit about how you kind of had to overlay some of them to to build the story and then how you how you would cut through some of the propaganda and official record uh kind of language to find out what really happened.
1: Yeah, sure. So, as I said, you know, at the time that I was doing the research, as far as I could determine, there were only two uh, sources in English. Um, you know, I'm sure if if I could read Hindi or uh, um, Urdu, I, I could have found others, but um, I don't, unfortunately. Um, but I I had what were essentially they they were not the official histories of the war from the governments, but they were essentially the official histories written by um, by the air marshals um, or people who later became air marshal um, in the Indian Air Force and the Pakistani Air Force. And I'm sorry, I can't remember the, the titles and the books are in storage right now, but- um, um, I have a similar problem. Yeah. <laughs> but yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it was fascinating. It was truly fascinating to read these two books and and read the, the accounts of the exact same engagement and and see what the official story was and how different they were from the two sides. Um, you know, one side uh, was positive that they'd shot down eight of the other of the enemy's aircraft, and and for no losses. And then the other side basically says the same thing. You know, we we shot down eight of theirs for no losses, and and or they might actually come out and say, well, we did lose one. You know, <laughs> but yeah, they'll, then you
0: we'll give you that one. But the yeah, others yeah. know you didn't shoot them
1: down. They're right, exactly. Um, but. Uh, I, I, I would have loved to have been able to find verified, um, um, you know, losses uh, and and be able to bounce those off of the of the official accounts so to speak and somebody had done a little bit of research on that although i think it was also biased because obviously both both books were biased but um you know one side and the other would mention well uh, you know we we found the wreckage of the airplane and the other the other side would say well, well that airplane came home right so um that that you know getting way down to the weeds that part of it was kind of funny but um- Well, yeah, and you even have
0: that for Korea, uh, you know, because so much has come out in recent years where we've realized that both the U.S. Air Force, uh, you know, kill reporting there was inflated, as well as a lot of the the Soviets who were flying for the North Koreans and for the Chinese at that point. theirs wasn't necessarily uh, the the best documented either. You know, they would shoot from. Uh, ranges like, you know, 1400 yards at a B-29. And if it puffed smoke, they'd say, all right, we shot one down because they'd see it start a diving turn. Uh, so <laughs> all those uh, all those kind of inaccuracies are just such a part of aviation history that, you know, it, it's tough when you have a conflict that is so propaganda driven as the uh india pakistan conflicts have been uh, just to dig through and find out really what happened and and really be able to to get to a a kernel of truth to then try to build a scenario off of
1: yeah and uh, it was it was also interesting in in the sense that um to try to wade through that propaganda and 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 to still give benefit of the doubt to, you know, regardless of what they did or didn't accomplish, they're still courageous men who went up in the air and shot at each other. I mean, you know, that's that's not an easy thing to do. Um, So, you know, not always wanted to avoid um, any anything that that might uh, look like, um, you know, we're poking fun at one side or the other or or whatever. But at the same time, But at the same time, trying to represent um, the state of those, the training of those pilots at that time as compared. To you know, N- NATO air forces, right? Um, who whose con- countries had the money and the resources to put their pilots in the air all the time, and and actually use live ammunition and training and and oh, things it, like that,
0: right? Well, it's it's a topic we'll discuss uh, here one of these times in the podcast with Tom Cooper, and there's there's unfortunately a lot of emotion sometimes tied up in what are the skill levels of a of a nation's pilots, and that unfortunately sometimes flight hours do not equal the same as training hours and just because pilots have a lot of flight time doesn't mean it's realistic training under all kinds of scenarios like like NATO and Warsaw Pact both put their their pilots through uh and a lot of times people might have you know 300 400 flight hours but a lot of that was taking off going to the pattern going to the local bombing range and coming back and landing and not you know multi element uh low level uh, missions and I know you talk about it in the beginning of your book but uh, a lot of the history books also mention that everyone thought these were going to be a high-altitude fight. And then uh, almost the first, second day of the 1965 air war, they realized everyone's flying around low. Uh, and so all of a sudden, they're very disoriented and, and all their their habit patterns uh, just aren't the same. They're not used to low-altitude navigation. So on both sides, you get a lot of stories of pilots ending up attacking the wrong targets or approaching the target from the wrong direction because they flew past it uh, or uh, or getting lost on the way home.
1: Yeah, absolutely, um, and you know, and even more extreme than that, pilots—a uh, lot of pilots, at least—more so on one side than the other, flying into the ground on a fairly yeah, regular yeah, basis. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so uh, you mentioned, or I mentioned, and then and then you picked up on the sort of the, the idea of um, you know one nation's pilots being better than another, and and so you know one of the the mechanics that we use um, in Check Your Six is um a national advantage so in in a book like this where it is the pakistani air force against um the uh, uh, the indian air force um in 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 the tactical combat on the table um there things go in phases depending on a lot of different criteria so essentially what happens is the better a pilot is the earlier or, or the later he gets to move, so that he gets to react to everybody else's moves, or and or the more altitude a pilot has, um, the later he makes his move because he is able to, you know, see what's going on and use his energy to to uh, to, to impact his decision making. But in the event that all of those different things end up being a tie, and you have to figure out who gets to go first it comes down to what we call national advantage. And so in in the case of this book, um, national advantage goes to the Pakistanis. And the reason for that is because, um, you know, the perception that I got from from my research was that the Pakistanis seem to not only have um, the advantage of somewhat better training, um, but they also just, honestly, they seem to take it a little more seriously. and not not saying that in, in, in any way to, to denigrate the, uh, the the fighting spirit and, and the professionalism of the Indian Air Force, it just came across that you know they the, the Indian Air Force seemed to have adopted more of that gentleman's club approach that the RAF has as opposed to um, the Pakistani air Force where it was i don 't know a little bit more like say the luftwaffe <laughs> um, well, and,
0: and it's very interesting when you look at the historical accounts of, especially after the partition, and you see what has been previously the Royal Indian Air Force now be split up. And the Indian Air Force stays very much in their Royal Air Force traditions and ways of doing things. And the Pakistani Air Force, uh, the United States courts them very quickly. Uh, because they feel like they're going to be a key ally, uh, obviously thinking the Pakistanis are going to be easier to manipulate and use and position against the Soviets than they really were. But they they partner with and they bring a lot of the Pakistani pilots over and fly them at the fighter weapons school with the Air Force and and fly them uh, in the Sabers that they're getting them you know ahead of time, and so they they are much more experienced in their platforms then the Indian Air Force, and you look at some of the the pilots of the Indian Air Force that the first time they saw a gnat or saw a hunter was kind of when their air marshals or whoever the test pilot was brought them back over. And some of them did conversion courses in the UK. Some of them didn't. Uh, some of them did local uh, courses. So they always had a kind of a, a very small cadre of of people that knew what they were doing. And then there was the rest of the squadron that... Were either good or average based on how their leaders flew them. You know, very much a a, uh, a very small cell uh, oriented way of training. Um, so it it made two very different air forces out there uh, to try to simulate uh, in the scenarios.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It- completely different air forces. Um, And, you know, uh, Chuck Yeager was, I believe he was the head of the uh, training mission, at least for some point in time. But at any rate, I know he was in Pakistan um, and provided his own personal assessment um, of the Pakistani air force, uh, you know, back to, to DOD, uh, to, you know, have an impact on, on training dollars and things like that. But, um, but another advantage that the pakistanis had is that they only had basically two types right they they had sabers and they had (laughs) f-104s exactly Um, yeah so it it made a lot of things a lot easier for them um but and another very interesting thing about the war is that um, both sides were very concerned about um about losses to bombers right so they were in every tactical engagement they were operating at the extreme of their range so um, the engagements couldn't last very long because they were all going to run out of fuel. Um, so that that was a very interesting concept to bring into the scenario design as well. Um, and so you see a lot of the special rules uh, relate to, as you say, things like, well, you flew off the wrong edge of the board, buddy. You're not getting home.
0: <laughs> um, yeah, exactly. And it's just interesting looking at it through you know my lens as as a experienced aviator that it's. It's fascinating to think about having just not enough time on station to have one pass. Maybe you see the bandit, and if you can't turn and kill him in one turn, you're back out of there, and you're leaving. And it's uh, it's a very very you know different mindset than than I grew up with. Uh, but now it makes sense now having read some of the history and realized that a lot of the pilots that they were going through, they were you know especially for like some of the ground attack missions, shooting their rockets at whatever airplane they could find on the runway and then getting back out of there to get
1: home. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, there there's a, a, more of those wonderful stories about how many aircraft and facilities we destroyed on the ground, you know, with our 36 rockets uh, that, you know, right. as <laughs> you say, we fired at the limit of visibility. Exactly.
0: Um, as they're getting shot at by all kinds of calibers of AAA, so they're not exactly, uh, probably making the most precise dive attack there. Uh, but you know, I think one of the other things that you probably ran into uh, as you're going through a lot of these official records, because uh, I know you kind of allude to it in one of the scenarios we'll talk about here in a second, is there's time compression in a dogfight when it's it's like a firefight. It's like anything else when your adrenaline is up. Uh, you being able to debrief that very precisely after the fact probably isn't true. And things may seem like they took a lot longer. Or things may have been instantaneous uh, that weren't, and so it's interesting to read several accounts of of things that they talk about, and specifically, you know, Squadron Leader Alams, um, you know, dogfight over Sargota, where it's five kills in thirty seconds is what the official record is, and then all of a sudden you have to reconcile that with the laws of physics and how the aircraft came to the target area, and you go. I don't know. I'm not going to say he's making it up, but that had to take a lot longer than 30 seconds. (laughs) So, you know, obviously, you chose to break it into two scenarios and say, "All right, we're we're going to put the stake in the ground that it was two different flights of hunters that he engaged, and it wasn't, you know, all one group."
1: Yeah, and so I definitely had to take that one with a grain of salt. And it's a great story, and wouldn't it be?
0: Oh, it makes an awesome story, you know. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Awesome if it was true. There's just the laws of physics just say it, it, it. Probably did not happen the way it was described,
1: yeah, exactly. and And so you know that one, as well as uh, pretty much every other engagement, honestly, um, you know I had to take the the two, the two quote official sources from both sides. And and sort of parse through it, and and you know, in, in many places or many instances, I, I probably just um, you know said okay, well, it wasn't, it certainly wasn't that, and it certainly wasn't that. It's somewhere here in the middle, and and had to sort of you know massage it to to be something that was seemed more realistic, and you know maybe in some cases it really was as crazy uh, as as one extreme or the other was represented in one book or the other, but um, but for the most part, uh, you know. When you're dealing with that, as you say, with that much propaganda involved in the history um, you, and very little hard data, um, you, you just have to, when you're designing the scenario, you just have to try to be logical um, and understand, um, get, a, get a feel for the abilities of the two sides as nations um, and, and how they approached the war and how, how they prepared for a war in the first place. Um, and, uh, uh, and sort of translate that into a game balance, because obviously you don't want to create a scenario that's not balanced unless it happens to be part of a campaign that's balanced, which is something I do sometimes. Um, but, uh, but yeah, to, to design the scenarios is really, um, it's, it's really about compromise and, and just trying to be logical about, um, the capabilities that both sides bring to the fight.
0: Well, one of the resources that we have now that I guess is an unfair advantage is there's been a number of uh, articles written by Indian Air Force pilots that, that weren't there in the 1965 fight, but they're analyzing those uh, those actions, and they've been written probably in the last uh, three or four years. And because we're all visual people with computers and smartphones and Google Earth they've done some really good physical reconstructions and there's now you can go out and I wish I could remember the author's name. I apologize. Terrible interviewer that I am. Uh, but uh, there's a whole series of of breakouts of a lot of these engagements by a guy who's a former uh, MiG-27 pilot. And so he he goes through with a pilot's level of detail and says, well, if we know the airplane crashed here, and we know the the bandits approached from this heading, uh, the engagement had to have happened here. And this guy says he made two left turns, uh, but we think he only made it through one left turn before he got shot down. And so um, there's there's a lot of interesting resources out there now for for people who are amateur historians or, or find themselves like me trying to write scenarios um, and and try to make things at least feel right. Because I don't know about you, but there's a lot of times that I would read the accounts and you read both sides accounts and you go... I, I just can't decide. I, there's there's a kernel of truth somewhere there in between both of them, and both of them make great stories. But I I don't know. And so so how did you pick that? How did you really sit there and say, okay, I'm going to make this scenario reflect more of the Indian account or more of the Pakistani account?
1: So that's an excellent question. Um, and uh, you know, there's there's some of uh, the part of the answer is artistic license, right? Um, and and gameplay balance. Um, but you want to capture the stuff that that really you know piques your interest and and sparks your imagination when you're reading it. You don't want to just throw that out because it seems outlandish. So um, you got to you just have to find a way to. Well, there are two ways to approach it. One is to find a way that compromise in a, a scenario, or you break it up, as I did with Alam, you break it up into more than one scenario and you balance it across the number of scenarios. And and in every one of right. the Check Your Six uh, scenario books, um, they're, they are broken down into many campaigns and then the book itself is an overall campaign. So we don't necessarily always 100% play balance an individual scenario. Because you can you can extend the play balance across many campaign. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well,
0: and I'm a I'm a fan of asymmetric scenarios, and Steve and a lot of the other Blood Red Skies players laugh at me because I will gladly write and or play a totally unbalanced scenario uh, if it gives me the feel of what the historical account was like. And and I I chose to take a different tack. So by the time this uh, podcast episode drops, uh, there should be a lead pursuit squad or, or scenario pack. Uh, for uh, India, Pakistan, 1965, with just a handful of scenarios, uh, not a whole lot of new special rules uh, past what we did for Taiwan Straits. But one of the things I did was I, I instead of splitting it into two scenarios, I almost, uh, I made this, the uh, Squadron Leader Alarm scenario, kind of a they will come in waves scenario where, as soon as five hunters leave the board, five more hunters show up. <laughs> and so you, you find yourself in a in a case where um you 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 either appreciate how difficult it would be to do what he said he did in 30 seconds, or you find yourself going, Wow, I was in the right place at the right time and as those hunters left the board, more hunters ended up right in front of me and I was able to shoot some down. Um, so it,
2: you know, Doug, I got to I gotta agree with you, though. Like, the unbalanced scenarios sometimes are super fun as just a gamer, right? I always, even when you talk in, like, Blood Red Skies context, when you talk about a scenario like Bounce, where it's basically set up for you to lose that scenario starting in, like, the most disadvantaged way possible, the times that even you lose but you put up a good fight, you're like, even when you lose you kind of leave that game like oh man i almost had you or oh man if i would have just done this it would have been a different outcome you know so those as a gamer are super fun well, and I think,
0: at least in Blood Red Skies, because it's such a low overhead to set up and play that, uh, and I've said it a number of times, even if you lose bounced on the second turn, you've only wasted 15, 20 minutes of your life. <laughs> so set up the game and play it again. Uh, because th- there's a lot, one, as a war gamer to learn from disadvantaged setups, but two, uh, with a super generalized game and not a lot of tracking and not a lot of Papers and charts and, and scenario prep—it's um, pretty easy to totally punt a scenario and come back and go. All right, we're going to try that again, and I'm going to turn left instead of turning right. <laughs> See if the tactics work out any different for you.
1: Yeah, I, I agree with with both of you, and I I, I love um, I I love for a scenario to be challenging. Obviously, it's better if it's challenging for both sides, but I I love it to be challenging, really difficult for one side, but but they definitely have the chance to win, and if they win, it's spectacular. Um, and Absolutely. you know that's always that that's always, you know if you're that guy or that team that wins, then you know that's that's one of your greatest gaming experiences, especially if it's a con and you can jump up on the chair and scream and yell and say I, I won. Um, <laughs> exactly. Uh,
0: well, as you're working your way building these scenarios, obviously you have to get to that calculating of the victory points and kind of building out how the the scenario is going to give both players a uh, a chance at having fun and also saying they accomplished something. You know, I thought it was interesting that for Crisis in Kashmir you really built a couple different things in. You know, you had basic victory points based on how much, you know, how many aircraft to the other side you'd shot down and and you know, I found your your weighting of that interesting and and I won't pick on you for that, but it's it's a, everyone's historical take on to which which of the two factions could absorb those losses uh, both publicly and in their air forces. Um, but then you have board exit victory points, which I thought was awesome. And I, and I don't know why I'd never really uh, thought about it specific to analyzing not just if they leave the board, they either count as a kill or don't count as a kill, but which part of the board did they leave from?
1: <laughs> yeah, because, you know, sometimes you you win by leaving. Um, I mean, in real life, yeah. right, uh, uh, learn to live to fight another day, um, preserve the force. Uh, that, and that, that becomes important. Um, in in a, in the a strategic concept, so, yeah, the um y- you obviously have to have you know your basic victory points for you know airplanes are worth you shoot one down it's worth this you you kill or capture a, a, an ace pilot that's worth something um, you know extra, um, but w- for crisis and Kashmir, partially because the history is just so interesting the political situation and. Uh, you know, and how it all related to, you know, Pakistan being our ostensible ally and yet doing exactly opposite of everything we wanted them to do, um, which they had the right to do. But except that we gave them the things with the understanding that they wouldn't use them for those purposes. But, hey, you know, they're a sovereign Security nation.
0: Security assistance. It never yeah. works the
1: way you imagine. <laughs> right. Um, but I wanted to I wanted to do something different. And I wanted to do something special to, to try to capture that part of it so that if you want to play the game as just, you know, one scenario and just play tactical airplanes and, and have a dogfight, you can do that. But if you want to try to replicate um, or, or, or enjoy how the air war had an impact on the greater 1965 Indo-Pakistani war, um, and, and how it related to the Great Uh, you know, the superpowers and and the rest of the world, you could play the Kashmir campaign. And so I created a parallel uh, structure so you could get regular victory points um, just like for any scenario. And, And then if you wanted to play the campaign, there were also these things called Kashmir points, which are essentially campaign victory points. And you, there, if I recall correctly, it's been a long time since I read the book. You can actually use your victory points, uh, like you know, money, to to influence um, the number of cashmere points that you uh, yeah. that you receive. So, so that you know, in that way, I was trying to uh, to replicate um, the impact that a tactical situation or a tactical outcome can have on the operational and strategic aspect of the war itself. So you as the player can say, yeah, I might lose 10 victory points um, if if I sacrifice these planes, but there's something going on here behind the scenes that allows that 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 is in the long run better for me, right? Making a sacrifice for for the long-term gain. Um, so um, you know a lot of people uh, some people seem to enjoy the Cashmere campaign, and I'm, I'm not sure if I would go so far as to say a lot of people enjoy it. And some people, like Scott Fisher, call it the tax form. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but
0: uh, <laughs> I I did laugh when I uh, realized that the middle part of the of the rule book is literally, I think, what five six pages devoted to how to record keep for your Cashmere yeah. campaign. <laughs> yeah.
1: But I had a lot of fun with that. <laughs> well,
0: you know, I, and I could tell a lot of thought went into it. And I didn't pick up on it when I first read through the source book. I, I'll be honest. I read through, went to the scenarios, and, ooh, those are really cool. Ooh, that's some cool force mixes. Let's go back and look at the campaign. Hey, there's, you know, victory points, cashmere points. It's cool. There's some different events. And there's a battle tracker. And it wasn't until getting ready for this episode, I went back and I said, hey, I'm going to, I'm going to math hammer this out. I'm going to, I'm going to go through the example that's in there and I'm going to look at the, the battlefield tracker. And then I suddenly realized how even asymmetrical the campaign game was. And actually that was a moment of, Ooh, I really want to play this (laughs) because I realized that the starting, you know, the level of effort for both sides starting, just regardless of what, what scenario was played, it would take different Victory point allotments and and casual point allotments to be able to influence the die rolls to be able to successfully move the tracker. Uh, and it and it wasn't just, okay, you want a scenario. It will move one left or you want a scenario to move one right. It was that's awesome, India. Good luck moving the tracker to the left because uh, it's like a it's a ten that you have to roll uh, and then have enough victory points to modify it. So
1: yeah. and you know, i i I like the game to be simple, but I don't like. What's behind it to be simple? Um, I, I like a lot of depth and and complexity in that part of it, and and that's why you know obviously the campaign is completely optional. You can play the game and it's very simple, but if you want to play the campaign, um, you know you got you got to put your head into it um, and and think it through and and realize what the choices are that you have to to make. Um, you know where where you make that short term sacrifice for the long term gain, and. As you go through, because uh, I know you're going to play the Kashmir campaign, so I'm just going to tell you this: um, <laughs> uh, the 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 weighting shifts through the war, you know, right? Um, right. And and uh, you have to understand that as well. Now it's sort of um, being, you know prescient, I suppose, to understand that it's going to be tougher for you later, or it's going to be easier for you later, depending which side you're playing. But you still need to figure out just how much easier, you know, how, how much easier is it going to be for me? How much can I sandbag in the beginning? Or do I really need to, um, you know, to, to put all my eggs in one basket this time and really go for that, that major, uh, cashmere point so that I can. You know, move the battle tracker. So, yeah. Well, and there's still a, a. A level of pure luck to some of it, and the
0: example that's in the scenario is kind of funny because it, it it kind of walks you through that of you know two bad dice rolls back to back can leave you expending a lot of cashmere points and a lot of victory points and still not getting any further, and you know you couple that with the other side maybe deciding to spend some points and do a campaign event. And all of a sudden, either maybe you're penalized even more victory points, or or maybe they have a um, you know a plus up in their casualty points or victory points that that makes everything even more unbalanced. And you're like, holy crap! How did I end up in a hole this far? Um, but yeah, it, it it really makes me want to play it. I I don't know that I'm going to find time in my schedule for 19 games of Check Your Six, but I'm sure that's something that
1: Sandy and Rob would love to walk me through. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it, you know, I I'm. I, I, I'm going to say this and it's going to sound like I'm I'm tooting the check your six horn, but really you can you can play two or three games of check your six in an evening. Um, uh, That's what you they get tell the hang me. I, I just, time.
0: I'm always cynical about it because I'm like, oh, I got to learn the system. And then I'm going to stop and have people explain it to me. And yeah, so I, I'm absolutely sure that you can uh, when you're comfortable. I just am not comfortable <laughs> because I read the rule book and I go, oh, it's another set of rules. I got to, got to, Push little airplanes around hexes and figure this out again. So, yeah.
2: Yeah.
1: Well, but uh, yeah. Uh, Clearly, you know, it's obviously the more you play it, the easier it gets. But, um, when we play test scenarios uh for the for these books um we'll play test them we might play test one scenario four or five times in one evening um right. and right. i mean uh, granted you know we're so familiar with the rules that we can get to a point where in the game where we say okay we can call it now um you know uh, or sooner than some other people might be able to call it um and say that's just there's there's a problem with the play balance it's just not working out um or or we know it's not going to work out in the end because of what we see right now and then we can stop and play it again but um but that's really not the point i was making the point i was making is that um is that we tried to make the rules simple um and even though it's a jet age game um you know you're not in Kashmir. you're not dealing with the crazy stuff like uh like we've written I'm. I'm. Uh, we're. We're getting ready to publish one on the Iran-Iraq War, um, which I've worked oh, on excellent. for years, um, and it's an awesome book. I can't wait for it to come out. Um, we've. we put so much cool stuff into it, um, but yes, then the complexity rises, and you will definitely want to have played, uh, you know, India-Pakistan 1965 before you try to play Iran-Iraq 1984. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs>
0: Yeah. So, you know, looking at the, as I call it, 19 scenarios for 19 days, I thought it was it was interesting because as a historian, you sit there and you read through the accounts and there's some rather bland accounts uh, in, in the history. And at least what you have done is you've given it that feel of, of 19 different actions in there um, that kind of hit all the major occurrences. And if you're really not paying attention, you don't look at the dates and you don't realize there are some days that neither side found the other uh, for whatever reason, whether it's for weather, for political reasons, uh, because, you know, they're really expensive airplanes that just been shot down the day prior. Um, but was, as you were doing the research for all the scenarios, uh, what really came out and was kind of a surprise to you just knowing about aerial combat as you're, as you're looking at what you're going to pick and choose and put in there? Um, Were there things that you couldn't fit into this book that you, uh, events that you wanted to put in there? Or likewise, were there events that, that you found, all right, I've got to kind of make this a little bit more interesting. So it actually makes a scenario rather than kind of what historically may have sounded like a one, a one-sided
1: encounter. Yeah, very good questions. So, um, it, it one of one of the most difficult things about writing a book of air air combat scenarios is avoiding making every scenario just like every other scenario. You know, the only difference is how many planes are on the board, maybe. Um, and <laughs> oh, I
0: know that problem already.
1: Unfortunately, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so that's you know that's where you you have to you have to get a feel for the history and get creative with the special rules. Get creative with the victory conditions, um, and and. Try to give a feel for what it was the pilots and and their command were concerned about at the time. It's not just about going up and shooting down another airplane, right? um you you got a mission to accomplish. what What was that mission they were trying to accomplish? um and and what might they have felt were acceptable losses in the in the pursuit of that accomplishing that mission. Um, so so that's that part uh, of the answer. Um, but were there things that I would have liked to have put in the book that I couldn't fit? Um, I wouldn't say I couldn't fit them. Um, I, what the problem was I couldn't make them playable. Um, so I would have loved to have done more with, with bombers, with actual bombers. Cause you know, uh, that's a, I, I can't even think of what airplane it is right now. Um, it, basically, um, Oh shoot! Well, anyway, the bomber that, that they had on both sides, um, Canberra's yes, the B. Yeah, Canberra's yes, B fifty seven Canberra. Yeah, um, I, I have such a cool little model of one, and I never you know got to do anything with it. But um, there just wasn't any way to make those scenarios playable um, because the the you know it was either they flew in um, and they were unimposed, or um, they just flew in and got completely massacred and there was no way that wasn't going to happen in the scenario right (laughs) so or
0: or the you know the the infamous you know the the only reason they got shot at is because they descended in a turn and you're like how (laughs) do i model this you know this is going to be a little interesting you know so yeah I, yeah, I can totally understand that. I I did laugh at uh, at a number of the you know, special and variable rules that are in there because it's not, your sense of humor obviously comes out in there because there's there's standard things you want to do in any scenario. And you're like, all right, we if we want to make it variable, let's take some of the pilots and make them not as good or other ones uh, better. And it's just funny to to read some of the the variable rule names. You know, for obviously the. Uh, Um, you know, a couple of the guys that, you know, turn the wrong way and then, you know, some of the guys that got lucky shots, you know, the lucky Lieutenant Yousaf or the really lucky, lucky Lieutenant Yousaf. Uh, guys that lose pilot skill, really bad eggs for breakfast, uh, you know, another one breaks the wrong way. So when, uh, when one of the green air crew gets removed for turning the wrong direction, uh, you know, there's, there's, there was at least a sense of humor in there that I, I really appreciated, um, dealing with the scenarios because I think one of the things longtime war gamers who aren't grognards and don't take themselves too seriously uh, always enjoy is when there's something challenging that's also slightly funny because we've all had it, whether you know we've had terrible dice rolls or the the uh, you know there's no way that that I'm going to not have, not be in charge range of this unit, and then it turns out you're half an inch out of charge range, or something like that. Uh, you know, all those things that make for funny events. I thought it was really good to have the same kind of humor put into the scenario. So at least keeps people from taking themselves too seriously. Hopefully, uh, as they're playing playing through the campaign.
1: Absolutely, I'm I'm a big fan of trying to to help people not take themselves too seriously, because um, it is after all a game, and we're supposed to be having fun. Um, and and I'm also a big fan of humor so um i like to to uh, come up with the pithy uh rule name or or whatever it might be um but uh, I, at the risk of you know again sounding like i'm denigrating one side or the other there was a lot of funny shit
0: <laughs> oh yeah there was and, and and i read the accounts as an aviator and and my problem is i i read them as an instructor and as a you know experienced you know weapons systems officer and i sit there and i go Oh my God, if I had to debrief that flight coming back, I think it would start with what were you people doing? You know, was anybody watching me? Was anyone listening when I said, go left, break left? And everyone went right, you know, but, but I also at the same time have a little bit of, I guess, mental mercy for, for the pilots because I've, I've been out there where literally you come back and said, lead you said break left and leads like uh play the tape again i said break right and you're like okay both of us in this cockpit heard left and we're a bunch of morons so you know it's it things like that happen out there it's confusing radios get garbled uh or even as in in some of the events people aren't on the right frequency and they can't tell the bombers down there that they're being joined on by uh by sabers so you know it's it's, it's really interesting to hear those parts of the account
1: yeah and you know that was one of the Really, one of the more interesting things about doing the research for this book, um, you know, having done a lot of research on World War II scenarios and and um, you know Korea and some of Vietnam, um, even though the two accounts were highly propagandized, it was still clear that they did a lot of stupid shit, and they and they just oh, yeah. <laughs> laid it right out there for you to know. Um, and so that's why, you know, I developed for this book the negative the negative one pilot. Usually pilots are rated from zero to plus three. And and I said, you know, I'm sorry, but we have to have a negative one pilot in this because yeah. <laughs> I have never done any research where so many people were doing so much stupid shit as I <laughs> discovered yep, in yep. these books.
0: Well, yeah. and I think that's a good part of having aviators writing the history, at least it has seemed on, on both sides, while there's still a lot of, quote, official account. Uh, there are people who grew up in a culture of debriefing. And so they are used to, you know, within the limits they're given by their government, airing the dirty laundry so other people don't make those mistakes. And and I know we talked about it uh when we were talking through Eric Hartman's story and the fact that, you know, Eric Hartman even himself tells the lessons of all the times he crashed airplanes, the times he ran himself out of gas, the times he shot himself down by being too close to the the Russian fighter that he joined on. Uh so you know, it it's it's one of those things that reading through stories, I sit there and go, Oh, I can totally identify with how everything went from well organized to an absolute shit show in about 30 seconds. Uh, because I, I'm pretty sure I've been in those same flights.
1: <laughs> yeah. And you know, hopefully we we capture that with the with the special rules in every scenario. You know, the, the option I I forget the term we use now for some reason, but um, but you know those all those pithy uh, pithy rule titles down at the bottom of the scenario sheet, um, and and every well I'll say this every one of those rules is developed in regard to some particular uh, historical incident. Or, or event that occurred while we were doing the research. Now, they may get repeated. It might be such a cool little rule, we repeat it in more than one scenario just because it's so much fun. But we don't make those up off the top of our head. They, they are related to some, uh, some actual historical event that occurred
0: well things like maintenance by the vespa headlight you know <laughs> yeah. you sit there and you go i i remember some of the stories of them talking about the things how they did stuff at their expeditionary airfields and i i even laugh about the, the story of them deploying the mig 21s uh forward that were not designed to be deployed and you know their ground crews showing up barely a couple hours ahead of them and you know having no idea what they're going to do and then finally the indian government making the decision we're going to pull those MIGs out of there because you boys don't know what you're doing right now. And those, those MIGs are too valuable to us. We need, we need those back defending um, the capital and everything else, rather than, you know, Ford deployed in the front lines. Yeah. And uh, you
1: know, the, the, that is, the flip side of the Pakistani Air Force only having two types, basic or three types, if you count the b fifty sevens um and and the in the Indians having this plethora of crazy aircraft, um, you know, including stuff that you know nobody else in the world would consider flying at that point in history. um, but it was all they had. Um, but that you know we tried I tried also to to bring that into the historical context of, um, as you say, you know, we're not gonna, we're not gonna risk those airplanes. That's national prestige. Um, we can't, we can't have the Pakistani air force shoot down every one of our MiG-21s. We, you know, nobody will ever take us seriously again. So, exactly. um, yeah. <laughs>
0: which, you know, people may look at the, at the victory point balances for some of these things, but you have to understand that there were certain airplanes that were seen as strategic assets. You know, F-10, the F-104 and the MiG-21 were both that way. They were low density, high visibility, Lots of national pride put into them, uh, and and as a result, if you lose one of those, you're going to get penalized heavily uh, in the scenarios.
1: Yeah, exactly, and and um, and and again, that is uh, as you say. You look at the victory points, and you go that you know that plane is not worth that much more compared to that other plane. But but the point is, as as you just said, it's it's a question of uh, of the bigger picture, um, and so it may not make sense in the individual scenario but it does make sense in the campaign.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, so we've been talking for almost an hour and in an attempt to wrap this up slightly, cause I could talk about this conflict for quite a while. Uh, other than your playtest group, uh, have you heard back from other Check Your Six players that have played uh, The Crisis in Kashmir? Uh, what have people said about the scenarios, the campaign rules and, and kind of the overall feel of this source book campaign book as different than the others?
1: Yeah, it's gotten uh, very good um, reviews, so to speak. Um, You know, we have a a Check Your Six Yahoo group, and um, everybody seems to enjoy uh, the crisis in Kashmir scenarios. Everybody loves the fact that there are negative one pilots in it. um, And you know that if you make a mistake in your F-104, you're just going to fly off the edge of the board, never to be seen again.
0: (laughs) Exactly. Thank you for playing. You're
1: gone. (laughs) Yeah. but I think most people, I, I, I'm pretty sure, are intimidated by the record keeping required for the Kashmir campaign. Um, and, I, you know, I don't, obviously, I don't push anybody to do anything with it, but um, it is a lot of fun. If you do it, if you take the time, and it, it seems a little complicated at first, but if you take the time, um, it becomes this really, really cool mechanic. And you can be literally losing on the battlefield but winning strategically in the war um and part of it as you say is there is still an element of luck because there is always an element of luck in everything we do um and you know if your luck is really bad um it might cause you to lose the war but your luck can turn and you (laughs) can and you can win in the the end so um I, i i would encourage anybody who happens to listen who's thinking about playing crisis in Kashmir, to give the campaign a try
0: absolutely well steve i know uh we've uh, we've kept you on mute for much of the night uh any last questions or anything uh anything to offer
2: no just that i i have to make a point to get on the board with rob and get some check your six in
0: uh, uh yeah we do i, I just I
2: gotta <laughs> do it right because it's so interesting to me and i just like how we were talking about earlier uh, that it's more like you're really controlling the intricacies of the airplane And uh, just add one more crisis or little war or you know, action, global action that I have to get another book and read up on now as seems to be the never ending rabbit hole of war gaming. So
0: yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) I've been happy to put my World War II history books to the side and now stock up on all my, uh, India, Pakistan conflict ones. So yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll be doing a little bit of reading now. So it's one of those things. It's, it's, it's good. That's why I play war games. It's not just for the, the fun of, uh, of competing with someone across the table, but for a lot of the historical, uh, learning, because, you know, even as a As a Marine Corps aviator, this is not a conflict I ever studied. It was not in any of our doctrine. It was not in any of our books. There were no quotes from any of the aviators involved, yet there's some really cool lessons, uh, especially um, as a weapons and tactics instructor or a squadron level instructor uh, on how to make people more effective in combat and and keep people from turning the wrong way and flying to the wrong airfield uh, and bring the airplanes back the way they should. Well, CB, thanks for joining us and and thanks for humoring uh, two non-Check Your Six players uh, with our our questions um, and talking to us about the uh, Crisis in Kashmir uh, book for Check Your Six for the Jet Age uh, part of that. Um, Once again, you know, we'll offer you the... uh, the invitation, anytime you want to show up and play Blood Red Skies, we'll uh, show you how to play a super generalized game. Uh, and uh, we'd always love to have you back on the podcast to talk especially about uh, Iran-Iraq uh, war uh, source books when those come out. So um, put us on your schedule to to chat all about that.
1: Absolutely. I'd love to do it. And um, I, I will be happy to take up your invitation uh, to to come down and and play Blood Red Skies, but I know that once you drink the Kool Aid and you learn Check Your Six, you are never going to play that game again. <laughs> <I'm> never...
0: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we'll see how. Challenge accepted. <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks for uh, for coming on the podcast, and to all of our listeners, I'd like to remind you to go out and and like the podcast, give us some feedback. Uh, leave us messages there on Facebook, Instagram, uh, via the website. Tell us, stop talking about Check Your 6 We're not playing that game. We're diehard Blood Red Skies fans. And then we'll tell you where you can stick that idea because this is an aerial wargaming podcast, not just a Blood Red Skies podcast. Although that's going to be our focus, I think, for the uh, next 30 to 60 days, getting ready for Gathering of Eagles. And I'll Make that last shameless plug before we jump off the air here. Uh, if you have nothing to do on June 4th through the 6th, would love to come down to lovely New Orleans and drink a lot of beer and maybe play war games in amongst all that beer. Uh, we'll be down there. The registration is on the Lead Pursuit site, leadpursuit.net slash goe. Uh, and you can get on there, get your good hotel rate, and come down and play Blood Red Skies with us or just talk about aviation and drink beer with us. We, we really don't care. No pressure. Like we said in the previous episodes, uh, just because we talk about tournaments and and playing Blood Red Skies a lot, uh, we've had more than a handful of people just show up and talk airplanes. So We look forward to seeing everyone there. CB, thanks again. Steve, thanks for being on the podcast with me. Uh, We will see everybody next week.